Welcome to Snap Sessions, an episodic podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name's Doug Nunn. I'm joined by Techmeister Marshall Downtown Brown and voiceover colossus Ken Krause, and by our artist of the show. Episode 24 of Snap Sessions features an interview with British journalist and author Peter Chapman, a Snap Sessions tribute to British character comic Felix Dexter, and Doug Nunn's Confessions of an Armchair Environmentalist. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash Snap Sessions or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. And now, Snap Sessions tribute to Felix Dexter, character comic. Perpetrating the evil in the world. Samson Archibald is on a one-man mission to save the people of Willsden. His name is Lucifer Beelzebub. He's saying to you, go down the supermarket and buy frilly knickers and besport yourself in front of your husband and carry on with lascivious, dirty, disgusting behavior. But I am saying to you, embrace the Lord for forty days and forty nights. He went to to the wilderness! Whenever Satan starts talking into your ear, go like that, I'm asking you, say, no! Stop it! Get away from me! Go on! Go back! And take that with you and live your life by that! Samson? Yes. Hello. Gary, yes. Gary Bellamy, BBC. Very impressive, that. Thank you. Thank you. Very impressive. You are a very, you. very brave man standing up there and my friend, Doing it's that. not me that is brave. No. It is the Lord that has given me the strength, the strength to come true and say all that I want to say. Yeah. Mm. The Lord will stand up and hit down Satan, pound him into the ground. The Lord has got ten times more strength. Come back. We don't anywhere. want you to be there with Satan rolling around in the pit of darkness. Stop the masturbating. Stop the fornicating. We don't want to lose you. We in Satan's lair. Come back into the light. Come back. Come back. That was great British character comic Felix Dexter doing the Reverend Samson Archibald mashing up Lucifer. It was one of many characters Felix brought us over a 25-year career in British comedy. In addition to the Reverend Archibald, Felix gave us Samuel the underground ticket inspector, Douglas the super articulate lawyer, Nathaniel the Nigerian accountancy student, Floyd Honeybuns, the boxer who continually denied it was a violent sport, Early D, the sort of all-around self-promoter, and Babylon, the confident commentator on the society around him. That's a lot of characters. And frankly, I'm just scratching the surface. There have been some exceptional character comedians. Some brilliant ones who stand out over time are Peter Sellers, Tracy Ullman, Martin Short, Dave Chappelle, the entire cast of In Living Color, and Kate McKinnon and many others on Saturday Night Live. Getting into a character and making them real and funny is a gift, something we all love to see, and we laugh in recognition. Think Peter Sellers doing three characters in Dr. Strangelove, President Merkin Muffley, Group Captain Lionel Mandrake, and Dr. Strangelove himself. Or Tracy Ullman, making you look twice to see if that's really her. 
Or Kate McKinnon, amazing you with yet another completely original character interpretation on SNL. Felix Dexter was one such character comic. Working in Britain as one half of Double Act Burns and Nun in the 1980s and 90s, I had the good fortune to meet Felix Dexter. We gigged with him beginning back in 1987 when Felix was early in his career. He was doing stand-up and telling jokes, but he was mixing in characters from contemporary multicultural Britain. My partner Tracy and I were amazed at what a large collection of comic characters could inhabit one body. Felix was born on the island of St. Kitts in the Caribbean in 1961 and came with his mom, Doreen, to Britain when he was seven years old. Doreen had been a cook and domestic worker back on St. Kitts and was invited to come to southern England to work at the infirmary and the sanatorium of the Charterhouse School near Guildford in Surrey. She brought young Felix with her and they began to put down roots. Being in the geography lesson, every time there was an issue about a tropical region, it was always, oh, uh, Felix, you should know this. (laughs) You come from a hot country. Oh, yes, mate. It's very hot in Guildford, isn't it? (laughs) Doreen's move to Surrey was beneficial. Young Felix was an excellent student, garnering lots of prefect badges at that school in Surrey, and by the time he was school-leaving age, Felix managed to get into prestigious University College London, where he began studies to become a barrister. By all accounts, he was doing quite well at university, and a brilliant career in the courtroom was a definite possibility. Felix was on his way to becoming a barrister, a career which thrilled his mom. Then suddenly there was a distraction, a big temptation. The stage and a chance to make people laugh beckoned. Felix Dexter, soon to be a barrister and a potential star in the courtroom, discovered another of his talents that needed a chance, his comic side. Felix began to do open mics at clubs across London, and he scored right away. Listen to the comedy store's owner, Don Ward, talk about Felix's early days on the comedy circuit. He had a 10-minute open spot, and he absolutely stormed it. He went straight from a 10 minutes into a full 20. He was that good. Felix was popular immediately from the comedy store on Leicester Square to the huge Jonglers Club in Clapham to everywhere else he played. In addition to one-liners, he did his unique character comedy, weaving in a potpourri of characters from all over the British Afro-Caribbean diaspora. Felix was like a one-man travelogue, a mishmash of contemporary multicultural Britain. He did classic characters, some you may have expected, like this spliff-smoking Rastaman. On one side is Scylla, on the other side is Charybdis, the whirlpool and the monster. Only Argonaut reach through. He knew these characters so well, he got inside them so well, and he knew how their minds worked. He could go on all day in one character, and that was sometimes a problem. We had to stop him, (laughs) So Felix, we've only got a half an hour show. That's comedy writer Charlie Higson, who wrote for Felix on The Fast Show, pointing out that Felix could not only play the characters on The Fast Show, a hit comedy creation of the mid-90s, he often wrote monologues for the show, or he improvised on the spot. As Higson also said of Felix, Paul Whitestone and I needed an actor for a sketch where a young black guy is talking in heavy urban slang to his brother, who is utterly mystified and can't understand a single word. 
We hadn't presumed to write any dialogue for the sketch, and Felix came in and improvised the whole thing spectacularly. Making a character come alive entails a lot more than just doing a funny voice. You have to pin down the attitude, the accent, the physicality, and most importantly, the language. Felix got everything spot on and allowed us to present a sketch in which it was all right to laugh at someone from an ethnic minority. Because his character was real, not a lazy stereotype, and because the humor was coming from Felix. Hey, wait! What happened, sir? So how come all this time on a buck upon this bread with really? eh? <laughs> <laughs> Remember the last time though, you know, I was in a dance clash, sound clash, right, by no. God, ninja man, it every is. song, <laughs> every, every. Soon as me reach the site of dancing, you know? fit, ready for flex, style, ready for flex, you know. We're going to deal with it, but still, I'm on block up, block up, me, I tell you. <laughs> see me there, see me there. Still, we're going to deal with it anyway, you know. So me turn around, but when me turn back, I know the brethren there punish you know, I'm not dealing with it, star, yard star. <laughs> me just look back and look, all right then, Rockstone, <laughs> Rockstone. <laughs> no, no, we can't keep up with us. I don't know what the bloody hell you're on about. Bloody <laughs> crap. Felix was a genius at creating memorable characters. Earnest African students, Christian fundamentalists, streetwise dudes, posh lawyers who were whiter than the whitest white man. He nailed them all brilliantly and had an enviable ear for dialogue. Take Douglas, the establishment black barrister. Please note here, Felix is doing both Douglas the lawyer and the enraged ticket taker. Oh, um, hello, brother. Brother, what the hell are you talking about? his family. I'm most dreadfully sorry. It's just that uh, as we are of the same hue, I thought that there might be some uh, cultural solidarity at least. Same hue? C cultural what? Show me your damn ticket. Felix was super popular on the comedy circuit, but in some ways he was just waiting for a bigger venue. Then the real McCoys, a sort of Britain's answer to In Living Color, came out in the early 1990s, becoming a showcase for black and brown comedy, and it would run for six seasons. Felix found a place on the show in its third season. Let's listen in on Nathaniel, the accountancy student from Nigeria, a guy who just can't stand the way Caribbean people speak the Queen's English. The reason for that, a lot of you were studious. You can't speak the Queen's language. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'll tell you that for nothing. A lot of you West Indians, you can't talk at all, I'm telling you. For example, my wife's sister, she's married to a West Indian. And this man, he keeps on ringing up the house. Last Christmas, ringing up the house, he said, excuse me, did anybody hawk for me? <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? The word is A-S-K, why you even put that H and the X in it? It's so stupid. I said, I said, no, there's nobody. I'm screaming anything here. Thank you. You see, that is so important. I'll tell you something for nothing. I'll tell you it for nothing. It's very important to learn the language. And when you express yourself, the language is what makes it uh, easier to seduce the woman. You can caress the woman with the language. I'm telling you, you, must, you, must, you know how to use the language to caress the woman. I'm telling you. Do you, do you know how to pay a compliment to a woman? You don't have to problem. Well, I will make you even better, I will tell you. Now look at this gorgeous young lady sitting here. Just take a look at her. I'm telling you to look at her. What's the matter with you? Look at her. Take a look at her. Do 
I want you to repeat after me. Look into her face. Repeat after me. Oh my goodness gracious. I must be dreaming. I must be dreaming. I can't believe that you are sitting here. I can't believe you're sitting here. Looking so gorgeous and delicious. I think I love you. I think we, could, we should get married straight away. Thank you very much. Congratulations. Then there was Babylon, the pro-black immigrant, a sort of all-encompassing, hard-working social commentator of a character who railed against oppression, racism, and all sorts of maladies of modern Britain. Babylon maintained that he used to be a teacher on Speaker's Corner. Babylon had lots of things to say about a lot of things. Let's start with animals wearing clothes in Babylon. I mean, in Britain. But the other reason I leave from Babylon is too damn cold up there, man. Too damn cold. You know, even in the summer, all you get is a little piece of sun like that for into the As soon as the English people see this, they throw off all the clothes. Going lying in the sun, going on about, oh, isn't it hot? Do you like the whole weather? Isn't it hot? It's very hot, isn't it? Just like in your country. Just like in your country. I can't stand that kind of foolishness, man. <laughs> from Babylon, you know? But you see some very strange things in Babylon, you know? Sometimes you're walking up on the street in the winter and you notice dogs got on clothes. <laughs> dogs with jacket and sweater and all sorts of things. It's all I could do not to look upon the dog and go, morning. It's fair to say Felix really knew all these guys, from Nathaniel to Babylon to Douglas. Another was Early D, who appeared semi-regularly on the Bellamy's People Show on BBC. Early D was apparently overwhelmed by his extraordinarily high-tech remote control. Check on the TV there, right? Yeah. That have like 56 dot matrix tinting. Early D wholeheartedly embraces our modern technological world. That TV is so good. If a man shoot a bullet in there, you have to move your head. I'm telling you, serious, right? Right. I, I check on this now. This is the remote controls. Don't mm. This is the remote controls for the whole. Everything controlled from here, right? Everything right. controlled from here. It control like uh, the lighting, right? It control the heat, right? Control the curtain them, right? Sometimes it even control downstairs front door. <laughs> what's, that, what's that noise? Oh, oh sorry, I, I think I run in the bath. Hold on. In Felix's guardian obituary, it was said in his act he often riffed on the idea that he was never sure of his place in British society. His lifestyle was more middle class than that of the so-called rude boys he so effectively portrayed in characters like Early D. Although, this was never a problem for any of his black fans, who would erupt into adulation whenever he performed his characters live. In fact, Felix knew his characters intuitively. Like most character comics, he was a keen observer and interpreter of human behavior. Julius Olafemwe, another character from the black diaspora, was an eternal student and rampant Anglophile, more English than most Englishmen. One of the stars of the show was Felix's character, Julius Olufemwe. Eternal student and rampant Anglophile. Hold on a moment. We won't be able to hear you if you don't put that on. Calm down. Calm down. Stop it. Stop it. So, Julius, why, why have you brought me here? Well, you know, I've brought you here to 
show you, in a sense, what are the most important features of London, if we carry on talking about the thing that we must celebrate about England. Yes. The thing about Julius is he is more patriotic and more British than any of the other characters in the show, and he's always picking up Gary Bellamy, the host, for not being British enough. Nelson's column, what a marvellous representation of all the best of English history that can be. That's not Nelson's column. No, 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 that's Nelson's Collins. No, no, Nelson's Collins is Trafalgar Square. It doesn't matter. Success in The Real McCoy led to work in TV sketch shows The Fast Show, Down the Line, and Bellamy's People. He also appeared in 15 Stories High, the classic spoof talk show Knowing Me, Knowing You with Alan Partridge, as well as the popular sitcom Absolutely Fabulous, where he played John, the father of Saffron's baby. In addition... Felix expanded into theater, including a season with the Royal Shakespeare Company, playing Autolycus in The Winter's Tale and at the National Theater alongside Dame Helen Mirren in Morning Becomes Electra. In the West End, Felix appeared in two runs of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with Christian Slater, having the dubious honor of giving chickenpox to Slater during the first run, thereby almost wrecking the production. His last role was as the Somali character Omar in the sitcom Citizen Khan. Working the same gig with Felix was inevitably fun. He was always having us on, winding us up, having a laugh at our expense, but never with malice. He was a truly fun guy to work with. In his own good-natured way, Felix was making the point with his characters that Britain deserved better, and to the end, Felix was a very private man. Few were privy to the fact that he was suffering from multiple myeloma, a pernicious and ultimately fatal cancer, which sadly took him and his treasure chest of characters in 2013. Felix Dexter, you are missed. You had thousands of fans, including me. Let's say goodbye to Felix with his parody of 1990s pirate radio. DJ Carlton from Utopia Radio. Evening, brothers and sisters. You are listening to uh, Utopia Radio, uh, coming at you on 93.33 FM on your stereo. This is Cold Tone, LPD, love, passion, and devotion coming at you on your stereo. Brothers and sisters, I believe an apology is due from me to you. When I announced an event last week, I give out the wrong address. I'm sorry. I thought the event was in Cheltenham, it turned out it was in Birmingham, sorry! I gather some of you are seriously vexed from the letters you've been writing. Now, I apologise because I give out the address of a government spy centre. Some of you were seriously embarrassed when you reached by being attacked by Her Majesty's Constabulary. You wanted to know what you was doing on their premises with your coach and picnic and ting. <laughs> Wherever you may be out there, in Oddsden, Willsden, Oddsden, it doesn't matter because we've got something special. I'm talking Hollywood. Hollywood is going to big up the station now. Check this. Uh, my, name, my name is Gregory Peck. <laughs> As you know, I'm a great supporter of the black community. I supported you in To Kill a Mockingbird. I'd like to say Utopia Radio was totally wicked. Murderation! Support from Hollywood! Mother Earth lives on the ocean. Mother-
armchair environmentalist. I like to garden, I love to take walks in the woods and swim in rivers, but I'm not really a big camper or backpacker. I hate getting targeted by mosquitoes around campfires. So, I'm not a super outdoorsman, but I am an environmentalist in the sense that I want to preserve the planet for future generations and be as respectful of other species as we can possibly be. I want to leave a legacy for all the world's children. If I am honest, I'm kind of an armchair environmentalist, but I am an active one. I taught at Mendocino High School for some years. In 2007, the longtime eco-lit co-teacher of our School of Natural Resources course, it's called Sonar, Bill Lemus, announced that he would be retiring and the course would need a new lit comp teacher to team with their environmental science teacher, Robert Jamgoshin. They asked me to fill the slot. This was the proverbial tall order for a short guy. Bill was a mega outdoorsman, a future member of the California Environmental Hall of Fame, and a brilliant teacher. Being asked to replace a green Hall of Famer with a guy who was scared of mosquitoes? What could possibly go wrong? But I just love being part of the Sonar program. For the next 10 years, I taught the works of John Muir, Rachel Carson, Aldo Leopold, Al Gore, and a variety of field biologists, environmental scientists, and green activists. Students presented eco-current events every Monday, and we participated in the Marine Life Protection Area Conferences, Salmon Population Studies, and bird watching. <gasps> we regularly worked on projects in the woods, on the beaches, and in the pygmy forest. When I retired in 2017, I yearned for a way to express my political solidarity with the movement. When I saw Al Gore's An Inconvenient Sequel that summer, I noticed as the credits rolled that he was soliciting trainees for his climate reality leadership project. So I applied, and I was chosen to join Big Al in Los Angeles at the end of August 2018. Uh, and this is uh, part of a continuing effort to build grassroots momentum to pressure policymakers in countries all over the world. I was one of 2,250 participants, as well as 120 mentors at the Climate Reality Project training conference. There were presenters, poets, politicians, and former Vice President and Nobel Laureate Al Gore. Gore made a very impressive, up-to-date, nearly three-hour presentation of his famous Inconvenient Truth slideshow. Gore worked to express three main ideas. Must we change? Can we change? And will we change? Frankly, the first part of the presentation was as overwhelming as it was in An Inconvenient Truth. In the presentation, he probably devoted about 75% of it to a series of slides detailing the problems involved, how the science works, how much CO2 is being trapped in our atmosphere, how it has increased historically, and how much it has especially increased over the last 30 years. And I met all kinds of great people. I met groups of Africans, Mexicans, and Brits, many of whom I had a chance to interview for our podcast, Snap Session. It was great to meet like-minded people from around the world. We were sent out all excited. 2,250 miniature Al Gores, all ready to rock and roll for Mother Earth. But when I went home, I had to wrestle with those 560 slides and put a presentation together. That meant going through Al's big pack, and quickly. 
I had already booked a presentation the next week at the Mendocino Community School, so I had to hustle. I started to go through all Gore's slides, a presentation that had taken the former Veep over three hours, and I had to fit it into an hour. I worked all weekend, and I got it down to 410 slides. Still way too long. So I thought, how can I do a better job here? I then rediscovered Al's Truth in 10, where he gives just 15 minutes of basics in about 70 slides. I then added some historical and political perspective, some slides on population and industrialization, and I restarted with a short 30-minute version, a 45-minute one, good for schools, and an LP 60 to 70 minute version, mostly for preaching to the choir. I began with schools because I had been a teacher and I knew people. Let's just say I know a guy who knows a guy who knows another guy. Then word got out and I started doing various community groups and then started getting invited to government bodies. First the Fort Bragg City Council, then Ukiah City Council, and then on March 19th to the Mendocino Board of Supervisors. Thanks to Supervisor Ted Williams and the Soups, this turned out to be a climate day with a variety of citizen and community groups. The culmination was to name a citizen's advisory group to get the county in compliance with the Paris Climate Accords. This group now meets regularly. I have met some fantastic people over the more than 50 presentations and speeches I have made, the marches and demos I've attended, the Green New Deal town halls I've gone to, and most recently, the mentoring I did as I returned to the Climate Reality Project's Global Virtual Conference for 10 days of Zoom conferencing in July 2020. There were almost 10,000 activists and mentors at this worldwide conference. According to most polls I've read, over 70% of Americans now support action on the climate crisis, and the potential Biden administration has ambitious plans to rebuild the economy with a greener agenda. There are exceptions to these green policies, most especially in certain bitterly resentful parts of the country. And you don't know whether or not that would have happened with or without man. You don't know. Inevitably, parts of the old Confederacy come to mind, but there is plenty of determination to move in a greener direction, even in the time of COVID. Witness the 17 mentees I was coaching, all between 16 and 18, and all avid young environmentalists. Some people at various presentations heckled me. One old lady said, You go on up there with all these facts and figures. Well, I want to talk about ethanol. My nephew is raising corn for ethanol. Blah, blah, blah. Is that all you got? Others have even trolled me, following from presentation to presentation. Then this is stalking. Making the same old hackneyed points. You're not a scientist. It's not CO2, it's water vapor. I admit, I am not a scientist, and I've sought smarter people than me to respond. I checked in with Mendocino's own Evan Mills, an environmental scientist for 35 years at the Lawrence Lab at Berkeley. Evan is part of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, co-winners, along with Al Gore, of the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize for their work on alerting humanity to the dangers of climate change. And he won the Nobel Peace Prize. Oh, do you know this? Can you believe it? He won the Nobel Peace Prize. They probably will never give it to me. Evan made me work. He had me read a variety of responses and put together a summary, which he then vetted. It's not bad having a Nobel Prize winner in the bullpen. 
In the end, I'm glad I've been involved with this campaign. I have a granddaughter now, little Bijou. But it would not be true that I am doing climate presentations just for Bijou, although that's part of it. It's also the Berkeley boy in me. I want to make a difference. But it's also just plain common sense and reasonableness. I moved into this house, this planet, and it was clean. I won't smear shit on the walls and then walk away. That's for real estate dealers from Queens. Actually, I was only kidding. You can get the baby out of here. Let's hand it on to the next generation looking better. Let's do what we can for Mother Earth and for little Bijou. Greater minds than me have considered this. Evan Mills passed on an old Chinese proverb. When the winds of change blow, some build walls, others build windmills. Sage, practical advice. Use the wind and the sun. They're free and clean. Let's make use of them. Let's do the right thing. And this is but an island in an ocean. This is our This is an impressive project. What is it? It's called Snap Sessions Podcast. It's got all the features you want in a podcast. Opinions, artist interviews, comedy tributes. Yeah, I'm telling you, it's a real fully functional assembly. Amazing. Who is supporting this massive undertaking? Let me tell you, an operation like this needs support to finish the job, and that comes from people like you. Me? Well, sure. Snap Sessions counts on listeners like you to help us continue our work. If you can give five bucks or more a month, we can keep building our podcast to keep you informed, entertained, and laughing. And you'll get special early access to the podcast, transcripts of full interviews, and more. Well, sounds great. How can I help? Go to our site at thesnapsessions.com and click on the Support Us button at the top of the page. Or check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash snapsessions. And you can chip in to keep us creating the best in podcasting developments. You can count on me. Uh, Say, is that foundation built to code? Sorry, no sidewalk supervision, bud. And now we present the Snap Sessions interview with British journalist and author Peter Chapman. This is Snap Sessions' Doug Nunn, and I'm here today with my old friend, Peter Chapman. Peter is a journalist who presently works for the Financial Times. I met Pete in 1975. Pete came out to Berkeley, where I was uh, finishing my final year at Cal, and he was visiting his then-girlfriend, Adrian, and we hit it off. And over the years, I've had a good fortune to visit Pete often in London, and Pete's visited me, actually, in Mendocino. He's had a very interesting career career as a journalist and a writer. 
And I've always enjoyed yakking with Pete. I look forward to it. Now, Peter, I welcome you to Snap Sessions. That's very good, Doug. Nice. Yeah, 1975 was the time in Berserkly. And well, here we are still talking, still trying to make sense of each other. I know uh, you grew up around Islington. This is, in fact, part of the Chapman mythos, I think, is the Islington life that you grew up in. You told me that you went to that school where Pink Floyd recorded Another Brick in the Wall. And uh, you also had a lot of stories about your relatives who had survived the Blitz, survived the bombings. Tell us a little bit about growing up in Islington, the young Chapman. Yeah, right. Well, actually, Doug, it was uh, my mother and her younger brother, my uncle, who went to that school sometime before the Floyd came along and said, we don't need no education. So, yeah, it's a very typical Islington school. I come from that area. And as I recall it, certainly in the 50s, going into the 60s, when the post-war economy just started to pick up, you could see bomb damage all around. I mean, in the back of my house, my parents' house, five houses had been bombed in one night somewhere between 19 September 1940 and the following nine months of Blitz. The place directly opposite the house where initially I was living with my grandparents, all around us was bomb damage everywhere because Islington, not being far from the centre of industrial activity of London at the time, and London was an industrial city even up until into the 60s. If you think about it, I think we were all of a mile and a half away from the River Thames, the docks, all the bustling input export business of the time was all around the central London district and any German bomber coming over and wanting to escape from the skies of London as quickly as possible no doubt being under attack themselves if you know they, they're liable to press that bomb button one second too early or too late well that made the difference they didn't hit the docks and the east end of London which is an industrial area they hit Islington and so that was all around us my mother who's 97 still alive uh, I, I see her very regularly less so during these strange times that we live in at the moment of uh, pandemic and she will talk about the blitz every week there's some other story sometimes I don't listen when I'm not listening I can just feel a new story coming on so you start listening again it's an area which of course the people who remember the days the people who remember the days are not many not many of them left but graphic times and as you walk around now you can still see and in fact the part of London I live in now is southeast London all around you can still see from those days and not just the blitz of course people here in southeast London keep pointing out to me where they were hit by V1 and V2 rockets, or their area was, towards the end of the Second World War. So London is still, if not scarred like it was when I was growing up, the memory is still there. The collective memory has been passed on. Yeah, I know. Uh, I heard a lot of stories that you and other friends have told me uh, about the Blitz hearing from their parents, mostly. I know that was uh, fairly rubble-filled, but as a kid, you quickly became an avid footballer. I know that that play, we'll talk a little bit about your books later, that plays a key role in your uh, goalkeeper's history of Britain, as well as the 1966 book. But for American, it, basically, you were a goalie in American terms, a goalkeeper, Britain, where you got recruited by the Leighton Orient Juniors to play as a goalie. You know, I've always understood this, like in terms of baseball, you had been recruited to play in the minor leagues for a major league club. Tell us, for American listeners, tell us a little bit about what the recruiting process was and how you were as a kid playing uh, football and so forth. 
Well, the recruiting methods were slightly different depending on how rich the club was. The top clubs of of the UK at the time, then as now, they had their individual scouts going around, roaming around the country, looking at school games, looking at Sunday league games and things like this on the local uh, rather pitiful kind of pitch but there'd be all the big clubs had people going out there the smaller clubs and Leighton Orient was one of the smaller clubs of London and still is from the Leighton Orient because Leighton is in the east of London uh, they give themselves a the name Orient as a result and that, what they used to do was they used to invite public trials as it were that you could write in as a kid saying can you give me a trial and they'd have these occasions twice a year when uh, they'd invite people, anybody who had written in would get a game. You probably got five to ten minutes on the pitch. If the ball didn't come your way, then you couldn't impress. If the ball did come your way and you didn't do absolutely something spectacular with it, then you didn't get chosen. And traditionally, out of uh, the 80 kids turning up of a Saturday morning twice a year, maybe two or three would get in. My school, I'd made it to the first 11 of my school at the age of 14 or 15, which considered advanced. They wouldn't let me come on this particular Saturday morning for the trial with Leighton Orient. They said the honour of playing for the school was far more than the honour of possibly getting to join a professional club. Now, my father actually called up Leighton Orient and said, my son's terribly disappointed he won't be able to make the trial tomorrow because the school first 11 is insisting on him playing. And they said, oh, he must be pretty good then. Uh, Tell me what school does he go to? And my father said, oh, he goes to Highbury School. Now, Highbury happened to be the name of Arsenal, the stadium of Arsenal Football Club in those days. So the late Orient man on the end of the line is thinking, oh, God, we've got a chance to snatch him from under the eyes of Arsenal Football Club, which, as you know, is one of the biggest soccer clubs in, in Britain and indeed in Europe. So anyway, I was just, uh, I would have invited along and stayed for three seasons. And basically the grading is that there's the junior level. Junior level is somewhere around 15 or 16 years. Colt level, 17 or 18. And then maybe you get to sign professional forms, become a professional and an apprentice in those days. And you, for being an apprentice, you earn about £7 a week, which in current rates is about $10 a week. For the honour of cleaning the spectators' bathrooms after the Saturday game, or polishing, or shall we say, washing the, the, the football boots, the soccer boots of the players themselves. Maybe you'd get the occasional game for the uh, for the third team or something like that. Very stratified and then not very well paid at the time, but not like the money today, you know, where $250,000 a week is considered a pittance for some of these top guys. But uh, anyway, I stayed for about three years, got to play against all the big clubs of London. In the end, didn't make it. I had other designs and quite frankly, Doug, professionally, I wasn't good enough to make it. I think mentally, I just wasn't right. Being a goalkeeper... I found you always dead scared about life. And I think you need to be um, slightly non-thinking to be, be a goalkeeper. We like to think we're great philosophers and thinkers, goalkeepers. But sometimes there are moments when you had to turn off and not think too much. You'd worry yourself to death, the responsibility of the team. And they would remind you of that anytime you let in a goal. It was always going to be your fault because everybody else was trying to excuse themselves. So I think psychologically I wasn't ready for it. I like to think, of course... Physically, I was perfect for it. But it's a bit, what's the old phrase? The older I get, the better I used to be. 
<laughs> as, I look, uh, as I look back, I was clearly a star who, for some reason, chose intellectual pursuit. But, you know, one of the great things about it is, as a sports fan, and I know you worked the sports desk also at the FT, it is quite the feather in the cap to have. Just, just saying. I want to acknowledge that as a long, longtime sports guy myself who has always loved right. playing baseball and football, American football and so forth. Anyway, right. I think that's a nice thing to have on the resume, on the CV. So I agree with you. I, I was just, A colleague at work once who uh, was a sports editor at the time referred to me in a piece as being inordinately proud of having played at the level I did. And, of course, he said it in a slightly dismissive way, as if that level, of course, he hadn't, like thousands of others, hadn't made that level. And it's true. It's a feather in the cap. I'm inordinately proud of it. Didn't make it professionally. You got so far and you got tales to tell. So That's great, Peter. Now, I know right after school at the time, you didn't go straight to university. As I recall, you telling me you got a job as a traveling salesman selling, and this makes us all out to be dinosaurs, carbon paper and office yep. supplies across Northern Europe. And this is when you're in your late teens, early 20s. Tell us a little bit about your life as a traveling salesman. It was early 20s, Doug. And you're quite right. I mean, if you talk to um, young people or even not so young people uh, these days, they won't remember what carbon paper was. And indeed, when I was off duty in Scandinavia, I had an American girlfriend at the time and came over and even tried around the streets of Baltimore and Washington, D.C., to sell carbon paper there. And of course, all the, you know, everybody had me into their office because of my accent, you know, the, uh, the heads of companies who had never seen an ordinary member of the public. It'd be something like the Baltimore Gas and Light Company or something like that. You only had to whisper downstairs into the ears of reception who put you straight through to the office of the top man, usually the top man there, of course, not top woman. And um, they'd have you out straight up to the office and look you in, in amazement at what it was you were selling. What is this stuff? You know, already ranked Xerox was beginning to, um, well, it had eaten the carbon paper market. It wasn't eating into it. But, of course, today we still remember almost carbon paper. When we're dealing with emails and everything, we copy people in, we CC them. And that, as I understand, it means carbon copy. So that is the way we remember it. Otherwise, it's a dinosaur-like thing. I went to Scandinavia initially to the eastern. They told me I'd be trained in Finland. And this sounded as exotic then as, I don't know, going to the moon or something like that. It was in the middle of winter. I was sent not just to Helsinki, the capital. I was sent to Karelia, a, you know, a small town in the far east of Finland, right on the Russian border where the Finns in those days, in 1970, always feared the Russians walking across the border and everything. You know, there I was, out in the provinces, dealing in another language. Finnish was not easy to master. But then I worked across in um, Norway and Sweden. And interestingly, one day, well, I think interestingly, I'll leave it to you whether you think it's interesting, that I walked in one day to uh, an office in Bergen in Norway and introduced myself and said, could I speak to the office manager? And... The people turned away to speak to each other you know, in Norwegian, the people at reception. One of them said something and they said, uh, and the other person replied, oh, Chupman, like this. You know, and I thought, Chapman, you know, Chupman, Chapman. And um, I thought, that's funny. I didn't tell them my name. And, of course, it turned out that Chupman in Norwegian means salesman. And, indeed, Chapman is in English is an old 
word for salesman. So a traveling salesman, a hawker. That's what basically I was a peddler. But um, I discovered that in Scandinavia that my name was my destiny. And Chapman is a traveling salesman. And of course, it's of Scandinavian origin. So that's what I was destined to be. I stuck it for 18 months. Earned pretty good money. Got to travel quite a bit around. I was a very shy person at the time. Selling, um, of course, takes you out of yourself. Fortunately, I never experienced the death of the salesman that um, you know uh, Arthur Miller might talk about, i.e. shattered dreams. For me, it was a way of coming out of a fairly sheltered life in London. London, UK at the time, rather non-cosmopolitan. Perhaps we're going back that way with Brexit and everything else. But uh, a rather non-cosmopolitan. London, swinging London was sort of moving quite fast, but not a cosmopolitan place particularly. And so it was good to get out in the outback of Scandinavia. It wasn't quite as I imagined. I imagined, of course, liberal minded you know scandinavian girls at the time actually you know going to finland and going to some parts of norway people were considerably shall we say in arrears of liberal london at the time so i I didn't exactly fully satisfy myself on that front but it was a great way of getting out of yourself very hard six or seven direct confrontations every day with people who didn't know why you were there when they found out probably didn't want you there and didn't have to speak in your language if they didn't want to And also, it's all on commission. You didn't get any money if you didn't work. Fortunately, the commission was good. And uh, for 18 months, two years, I found it a great experience. And again, it's something I look back on as having been a great value. And funny people like you even get to ask me questions about it occasionally. (laughs) That's great. You know, I know also, and this makes you a little bit unusual too, when you came back, then you went to university. You were already in your early middle 20s by then, right? When you started at Sussex. So this this makes you sort of like, this has you something in common with, say, my father, who had been in the Navy, got the GI Bill, was a working class kid, and then went to university with two children at the time. So you came back as somebody in your early middle 20s, and you went to Sussex to study. And then you ended up at LSE, the London School of Economics, a very famous university school there to work uh, further on master's in econ. Could you tell us a little bit about your university career and how you ended up at LSE? Yeah, I was 24 at the time. I'd been at work for you know six years, not least because of, I don't know, immaturity in my teens, too much football, too much soccer as well, probably too much idling around with the hormonal change and not working out with what I wanted from life, which all basically amounted me to me not passing the necessary exams to get to university and not really having the ambition at the time. Nobody in my family had been to university. Uh, Islington, North London at the time was a place where you didn't meet that many people who had been to university, working class background. My parents wanted me to make the jump from blue collar work to white collar work. And I got in, I got an office job initially in London for, as far as they were concerned, their ambition had been achieved. I wasn't going to have to work with my hands. My father was a bricklayer. I wasn't going to have to spend time on the 10th or 11th floor of some block bricklaying in the middle of January or February. So for them, it was a, a step forward to have got an office job, uh, a clerical job. Uh, for me, it felt at the time to be a little bit, well, it, it didn't seem quite enough for me. And after my experience as a traveling salesman in Scandinavia, I actually applied to do a degree at Sussex University 
a very good, very leading university at the time, a modern university, I, I wanted to do a su- the subject of international relations. Well, since I've been internationally relating for a while, and Sussex was you know, the cool new university to go to at the time, in the early 1970s, when I went, Oxbridge, Oxford and Cambridge, had taken on a very stuffy uh, appearance. Here we were, late 60s, early 70s, swinging London, London and some parts of the UK getting a sense of coming out of its old self and less elitist, a little bit less elitist than it had been. And so people were kind of not so Oxford and Cambridge oriented at the time. And the new universities were the place to go to. They were literally new. They'd only been founded in about 1963. They weren't old fashioned. And it has to be said that you started to see in the, again with the, the you know, London being quite a place to be. You'd be seeing some of the you know, young female stars and uh, daughters of gentlefolk, zippy, interesting, and a lot of them in their mini skirts all seem to be going to Sussex University. I applied not for such basic reasons, of course, but for, uh, for intellectual reasons. Um, but, you know, there was a place to go if you wanted to catch up with the modern way. At the end of my three years, I'd enjoyed it so much that I thought, well, I want to go on and stay at university longer. And one thing I discovered about international relations was that if you wanted to know about international relations, you needed to know about economics. I didn't know about economics. And the London School of Economics was offering a two-year course to do a master's, one year where you effectively had to do the entire bachelor's degree all in one year. Then you moved on to do the master's. And a little bit like your dad, Doug, coming out of the services after the Second World War, it was a great time for Americans uh, in the sense that people have put in a lot of stuff for their country and the country delivered back again to people who hadn't had a further uh, tertiary education, as we call it here. And there there was money available. There was funding available in those great New Deal days for people like your dad to go to university. We still had a bit of a new deal going on in here in Britain where you got a grant to go to university for your three or four years. In my case, the two years for the master's. I had three years at Sussex, all of it grant funded by the government. And I had two more years where the government paid for the course. I was able to enjoy two more years out of the rat race of work life learning about economics. I have to say there are moments when it was dull uh, compared to international relations, but you learned a lot. And, uh, you know, the great debates going on at the moment about how you revive an economy, you know, after the COVID-19 stuff, there's going to be, whether whatever President Trump says, money is going to have to be pumped into the economy. And we were living at that time, in a time of economics, when that theory about pumping money into the economy to get an economy going had continued onward since the Depression with Roosevelt and and all that kind of thing. And it was a very interesting time to be around in economics because that theory was just just beginning to be questioned by the Chicago economics of Milton Friedman, which said rather than pumping money into the economy, why don't we pull it back because inflation's getting out of control. It was an interesting time to be there an interesting place to be, the London School of Economics. And once again, I feel I learned a lot. Now, at this point, uh, in fact, you somehow made the jump to journalism. And I, yep. I know you had told me early on, in fact, you said when you were a kid, 
uh, you were interested, you thought this would be a great life. You get to travel, meet people, you know, meet interesting people and so forth. How did you make that jump? Because uh, there was a period of a couple of years there when I wasn't quite sure what you were up to. I knew you had gone to uh, LSC and so forth. Tell us about the leap to journalism, as it were. Well, this is the well-known employment, the well-known employment act, uh, agency known as the um, Friends of Friends Bureau. You, you, it helped to know somebody. You're right. I was interested in journalism. My, a lot of my family had been in the newspaper business, but in the machine room, the heavily unionized machine room. They received good money down there, below stairs, as it were. Um, I wanted to get upstairs and on the writing side. Never thought of doing it till I was about 18 and then didn't know how to do it. But basically, I had friends who had contacts. And yeah, it was a bit of luck, to be honest. An old girlfriend of mine knew people that there was a job going. It was in commodities journalism. I'd written a couple of theses, as it were, at Sussex on the subject of two commodities, copper, because of the recent crisis at the time in the early 70s in Chile, what with the Pinochet coup and everything, Chile being a major copper exporter. And also, I derived an interest in bananas. I worked in Israel on a kibbutz. It happened to be a banana kibbutz. I'm one of those people who knows an indecent, indecently ridiculous amount about bananas. I'd done a thesis on it at Sussex University. On the republics down in Guatemala, Costa Rica, El Salvador, and because I found that, yeah, I discovered, I discovered there was this huge American company, the United Fruit Company, that effectively ran those places. The economies of those places were so dependent on bananas that the United Fruit Company, for a long period of time, could more or less do what it liked. I mean, you know, we only have to go back to 1954 uh, when the United Fruit Company, with the U.S. State Department and the CIA, overthrew a democratically elected government in Guatemala. This was politically an interesting subject for me. As I say, I knew far too much about bananas, probably just the right amount about something like copper. And this job came up in commodities journalism. I was able to sell myself as being this uh, world and wide-ranging expert who knew, knew everything from fruit to valuable metal, all about commodities. I got in, I was out of my depth, but survived for about six or nine months, eventually just about to make it, and found myself then working in Central America, Latin America, as a result of this background in, in bananas and copper, basically. I was going to say, um, I know uh, you ended up working for The Guardian there, but then sometime, I think about 85, you ended up working for The Guardian and getting put in Latin America. I think you were in uh, Central America mostly. You covered Mexico, yeah. Central America, some of the Caribbean. There was all kinds yeah. of stuff you did. Mexican earthquake, I recall. You interviewed a lot of the, that time, uh, Central America was in turmoil, Roberto Dobasan of El Salvador. I think you might have talked to Somoza himself in Nicaragua or the Sandinistas. This is a whole treasure chest of possibilities. Please tell us a little bit about your time working for The Guardian in Central and America and Mexico. Yeah, I, I got to actually um, those trips were usually from, I think, from about 1979 into the early 80s. And there was this great fear in America that the, the domino theory, again, was going to go into, was in operation. You know, it had been in Southeast Asia, and people love to carry these, these ideas with them wherever they go around the world. And the State Department was very worried about a domino effect in Central America with one 
uh, Central American Republic after another, falling to the left, shall we say. And I got to meet Somoza, uh, Anastasio Somoza in Managua, Nicaragua, in 1979. In his bunker, in the middle of still earthquake-destroyed Managua from the earthquake of Christmas 72, and he assured me when I spent uh, an afternoon down in the bunker with him and his subalterns, as it were, he assured me that everything was going to be fine. The guerrillas, the Sandinista guerrillas, hadn't got a chance. This was April 79. He was overthrown a few weeks later. And as I left the bunker, I had to leave the interview quite early. So um, I actually walked out on on this president that um, I'd been anxious to interview. And he said, I'm terribly sorry. He said, I didn't know you had to get, yeah, this is a guy who ran the country uh, as a business. He said, "Um, I'm really sorry. He said, I didn't realize you you had a plane to catch. I said, yeah, I've got to get to Costa Rica. And and then his son, who was also Anastasio Samosa, ran the army. So that's okay. We'll call a strike at the airport. And when I got, well, he didn't exactly, but they told they told the plane to wait. When I got to the airport, this plane from the Honduran airline, which was going to fly on from, it had been from Honduras to Nicaragua, was on the way to Costa Rica. There it was, standing there on the tarmac with all these people in the reception areas waiting for me to arrive in this kind of white Mercedes and Samoza had a fleet of these arriving at the airport and they said, Oh, here he is, here he is. Oh, and one of them who took my um, you know, my disembarkation card or whatever it's called for the plane said, Oh, are you a politician? And I said, No, I'm a journalist. And he looked at me as if to say, Why the hell have we been holding this plane for you? And uh, but anyway, so a few weeks later, Samoza had gone, but of course, then the crisis moved and the Sandinistas came in, of course, in July 1979. Then the crisis moved to El Salvador, Guatemala, and I was following this for the Guardian newspaper in London and uh, in the UK. And I, well, I went to El Salvador and before meeting people like Roberto Dalbuisson, who's on, on the far right um, opposition to the government at the time, I was, I was able, had the privilege of interviewing Archbishop Romero of San Salvador, who a year later, uh, was assassinated, quite possibly, even probably, by people connected to Roberto Dalbuisson. And it's it's peculiar the way the world, the speed at which the world moves today, Doug, because once upon a time, apparently you had to be 400 years dead before you became a saint. And I think Archbishop Romero is almost at sainthood now, which has given me the opportunity, if I turn this into a centrally oriented story, it's given me the opportunity to be able to say, well, you know, in my lifetime, I've interviewed a saint. And um, then from El Salvador, it went to Guatemala. And it was a, an area, an underprivileged area. And in the wake of, you know, companies like the United Fruit Company having run it for so long, the instability was phenomenal. Eventually, I moved up to Mexico, looking for more stability. And of course, Mexico had a government, which is a single party government, which had been in for 70 years. I was looking for that kind of stability of life rather than too much conflict, too many bullets flying around. And then, well, you know, in Mexico, you look for stability and you get an earthquake of, what was it, 8.1 on the Richter scale in uh, 1985, September the 19th, 1985. But a wonderfully interesting journey, of course, where you have the privilege of looking in on people's lives who have got other things to do than just go around writing about whatever they're doing 
are moving from one day to the next, just living on their means. And you have this opportunity to be able to go and talk to people like that. And of course, down south of the border and indeed north of the border, as to be said in America, everybody's always happy to have a chat with a journalist. Sometimes the president I see today refuses to speak to certain journalists. But North America, South America, Central America was you know, wonderful, wonderful people who would talk to you any time of the day or night and you know, made journalism to be the kind of rewarding career that I was hoping for. I know also um, you worked with a, a large group of people. I recall you talking about, I mean, these people, presumably you've had experiences that have bonded you in a way and people I'm assuming you, you stay in touch with. I know at the time you talked about, I had never heard of NPR in ni- about what? 1987, say way back when. Oh, you're the guy who told me about NPR because you were working with a, a chap named Scott Simon. Now, Scott has had for years his own Saturday morning show, Weekend Edition with Scott Simon on NPR. Terrific show. My favorite yeah. news show on NPR. I'm just curious, what was Scott Simon like back then in uh, Central America? Well, it was great. We were in El Salvador together. And, you know, Scott is this sort of de- decent Midwestern guy that's polite to everybody. You know, there he was in the middle of this Central American war. And, um, well, there was I. And, I, you know, it was, I think, a shock to both of us. There was one day in the main hotel of San Salvador, in El Salvador, in the middle of an election, which was a fire with guerrilla skirmishes, fights going on with the army. And we were basically threatened one night by these posh kids. These people in their early mid-twenties are all sons and, well, sons of the um, the ruling classes, shall we say, and the very right-wing people. And they were very intimidating, you know, sort of basically accusing us of misreporting what was going on in the war. And Scott was a great guy to work with. We had things in common in that, um, although he came, you know, he's a Chicago boy, I'm from North London. Uh, I worked for The Guardian and the BBC, where expenses are minimal. And Scott worked for NPR, where expenses are minimal. But we uh, spent uh, a good deal of time chatting about the situation, getting around, and we kept in touch. And um, Scott was has always been open to if I'm in Washington or whatever. I must admit, I haven't seen him for a couple of years now. I remember going once, and I don't know how many years ago it was now, and he, he gave me the uh, Watergate tour of Washington, you know, where Deep Throat met Woodward and Bernstein and all this. And for somebody coming out of London, and he tells a good tale in that Midwestern down-home sort of way. Very nice guy. Sometimes you would imagine too nice to be in journalism. NPR is a very happy home for people who think a bit, they want to talk a bit and in a meditative and interesting way. And Scott is certainly that kind of person. I enjoy his show very much. And, uh, you know, just parenthetical remark, which I'll edit out later. Um, it's At a certain point, I wrote him a short uh, email, con- you know, sort of fan mail type thing. And I mentioned I was your friend and um, he wrote me back. So anyway, you know, this is he the did. kind of stuff you don't expect from, uh, you know, a big shot, uh, nationally syndicated show and so forth. But anyway, I, I use the Chapman card, so to speak. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> It lasts for one turn. <laughs> it's a get out of jail free card. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. so um, at a certain point, you married an American uh, expat, Marie. She had been married to a Mexican politician, had a young boy, Pepito. And then you all moved back to London. 
and you sort of re-upped your journalistic career there. Tell us a little bit about the move back to London and after having been gone for some years in Latin America and how you got on and found your way to the FT, the Financial Times. Well, I I think with the decision you make if you've been somewhere like living in South America, Central America, as a very privileged person from the West, living on an income or earning an income in a hard currency, it can be an easy way to live. Of course, people have servants. There's usually some domestic help and things like this, which you don't get in the UK. You don't always get in the US by any means. And it can be quite a very easy lifestyle. And um, there comes a time when you have to make the decision that whether you want to settle into this or whether you want to go back home. And progressively, it gets more difficult to go back home. I didn't want to be a foreign correspondent all my life. Um, You can be a bit footloose and only become used to being footloose. I wanted to go back in London and have a go again at being a journalist there. And this suited the family at the time, American wife, Mexican-American little boy. Uh, They liked the idea. They've been in Mexico, of course, some years. And uh, they liked the idea of moving to Europe. I wanted to go back. Interesting time. I wanted to go back to base, as it were, and see how we got on. Then I went, did a bit, got into television and things like that as a result of my work in Mexico. For example, I worked on the World Cup, the Soccer World Cup in 1986 for independent television, ITV, in London. And this helped get me a job in current affairs back in Britain, working for the ITV network for independent television of the UK, ITV as we call it. Going back to the UK helped me get a job in television, which was enjoyable, although I found, you know, television scripts, for example, are about one-tenth the length of, say, a newspaper article. It's a visual medium, so words are not needed. I enjoyed the experience of that. wanted to get back into word journalism rather than video, uh, rather than visual, rather. And also, I did quite a lot of radio for the BBC. I'd done a lot of radio for the BBC as a correspondent for the BBC in Mexico. And that helped me get back into journalism in the UK. And a job came along in the Financial Times 25 years ago. And I was able to take that. As a result, actually, strangely enough, it was because I I spoke uh, decent German. In part of my travelling salesman days, I'd worked in Austria as well. I'd learned German. Uh, not with the advantage of you with the ethnic background, but I'd learned it at school because in the early 60s at secondary school, learning German in in bomb-destroyed London seemed to me a very exciting and risque option. Learned a bit of German at school, consolidated it working as a travelling salesman in Austria, and this helped me get me a job. The Financial Times, uh, which had very close links with uh, Frankfurt, helped me uh, get a job at the Financial Times, speaking with um, the Süddeutsche Zeitung, actually, in Munich. And so that's how I got it back into written journalism, thanks to a bit of um, Germanic background and also quite a lot of um, background in general journalism. Yeah, you know, it's uh, that brings just a, a point up here. You speak Spanish fluently. You speak German uh, well enough to be a journalist, certainly, I would say, quasi-fluently. I don't know if you... What you would say there? When I worked in Austria as a traveling salesman in 1971, it really was fluent. I used to get a great pleasure out of being able to speak. And not only that, Doug, you know, I'm speaking to Austrians. 
who speak, well, they're, they're like the way Scots speak English, you know, or Londoners speak English. You know, there's the Austrians with their, you know, Zwiensvonsich kind of way of speaking. Uh, and in order to understand that and speaking all the time, selling in German, that's where I consolidated it. It's not as fluent as it was. And Spanish isn't as fluent as it was when I, as when I lived in Central and uh, Latin America. Of course, in the UK, you don't get much chance to practice. We have a lot more. Um, Spanish-speaking people around now, but yeah, I, I was uh, enjoyed that cosmopolitan side of education, being able to learn languages. And at the FT, in addition to checking in with the Süddeutsche Zeitung, you've also didn't you also work the sports desk for a while, and now you've moved up to editor. Want to just give us some a background of that twenty-five years of sort of a some of the signposts along the way. Yeah, I, you know, sport journalism, I would say, because the Financial Times I did have a sports page for a while. Very late discoverer of the virtues of sport because, uh, you know, if it wasn't business, the FT didn't want to talk about it. But of course, then sport became big business. So that's how I was able to do it. I'm not the editor by any means, but I am an editor at the FT. Uh, last year, I was also leader writing, you know, um, writing the opinion of, of the Financial Times for three months, you know. I had a secondment to leader writing, which I found to be an interesting experience because you you have to have an opinion on everything, and sometimes and it has to be a defined opinion. And you might go in in the morning not knowing what you're going to write about that day. The subject you're given, you might not know anything about. By the end of the evening, by the not so much the end of the evening, you're sitting with the editor as a self-declared expert on the subject. Also producing, shall we say, something on the judiciary, which you know the Ministry of Justice is going to be reading in the morning because it's in the FT. And you've got to have a defined opinion on it, a coherent opinion on it, and sometimes get away with it without really knowing very much. Well, there you go. I mean, I often wonder uh, when editorials come out, say, in the New York Times or the Washington Post, because journalism's changed that much that I read those regularly now. You know, I always wonder, well, where do they come up with that? Although I often agree. I'm, but it is interesting what you describe. And I know the FT is yeah. often quoted in the, in the United States. So there you yeah. are. You're probably getting quoted over here. Yeah, you, and what you do, of course, is that you go, I mean, for instance, if you're writing that day about the probation system or, I don't know, the, uh, the salaries of uh, senior surgeons in the National Health Service, you go to the newspaper's expert on that subject and derive your view with their help, and then espousing it yourself by the afternoon, sitting with the editor, sitting with the editor. It's a bit like going back to school. He's like marking your classwork. You've handed your stuff in. He's got it on his computer in front of him. You're sitting next to him while he sits there marking it. That can be an intimidating moment. I remember the the former editor, Lionel Barber, who um, uh, after 14 very successful years uh, left the FT this year, Sitting there as we were one day writing an editorial, a leader on Venezuela, which is a country I was um, intent, I meant to know something about, having worked in Latin America, having travelled there two or three times. And he's sitting there saying, you've got to be nastier to these people. You've got to be nastier to these people. You've got to be firmer. You've got to... It's no good saying on the one hand and on the other hand, which is a normal way with journalism. Like Good journalism, like the Financial Times, gives you know, a, a collection of opinions. When you write leaders, there's only one opinion. That's the newspapers. That's yours at that moment. And you have to sound certain about it, not sort of, um, oh, well, on the one hand and on the other hand, this. You know, you have to be defined and clear in your views, even though you're really not sure yourself. That's a trade secret. That's great, Pete. 
Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about your books. I've read four of your books. I've enjoyed them all. A fan, I enjoyed, because I know you, uh, you've written books about bananas, you mentioned, and uh, bananas, how the United Fruit Company shaped the world. And you've mentioned that you had an, an accidental expertise in bananas. You've also written about the Lehman Brothers. Yep. But, you know, I have yep. to say, because I know you, the Goalkeeper's History of Britain and Out of Time, 1966, where we learn a lot about the young Pete Chapman, Peter Chapman, the journalist, etc. Those, to me, give a lot of context to a young person's life, the Goalkeeper's History of Britain, especially. Tell us about how you decided to write that book. It's really uh, very autobiographical, but you learn a lot about Britain in the mid-60s. You learn a lot about football and its place in Britain and in Europe, too, I guess, by inference. Tell us a little bit about the, how you got together in your mind to write that. Well, I wanted to write a book. I wanted to move in, shall we say, writing longer pieces than either a 400-word news piece or a 1,200-word feature piece for the newspaper, uh, whether it be The Guardian or The Financial Times. And I didn't know how to write a book, to be honest. I knew an editor at one of the um, important publishing houses of London at the time who was interested in football, supported the same soccer team as I did, and we'd have coffee every so often. And I said, well, I'd really like to write a book about the history of British goalkeeping. And because my father was a goalkeeper and he played for the army uh, during the Second World War as in, uh, with the forces, the British forces in first North Africa, and then coming through Italy throughout the years of the Second World War. As each town, you know, the Germans were being driven back, of course, by the combined forces of Patton and Montgomery. And uh, my father, of course, was with the UK forces as they got to successive towns. It might be Florence, it might be Bologna, it might be Rome. So, you know, so the Germans left the place and then in their spare time, the troops would play football on the main soccer pitches of the particular town. You know, my father's played for example, the Olympic Stadium in Rome, the old Olympic Stadium in Rome, it must have been abandoned. It must have been hard. It must have been a, a, a quite a decrepit sort of pitch at the time. But he was a goalkeeper. And it, it always struck me that goalkeeping was the British position because, you know, we've always had this view. We're a slightly offshore country. You know, we're members of the European team, but we're not really, we're of it, not in it. And goalkeepers as well were members of a team but of it, but not exactly in it, always a little apart. And it always struck me that goalkeeping was the British position, not least my father always seemed to me exemplary and a real example of the true British person. And we always had this offshore attitude, the Brits. And also, you know, there was the myth of Dunkirk and all that kind of stuff. You know, goalkeepers traditionally have to come and sort out the mess that everybody else makes in front of them. The team makes a mess. The goalkeeper advances, usually advances off his goal line, sorts out the mess, then scampers back to his goal line again. And brought up as a British person, that was always the, the view, you know, the First World War, the Second World War. The mess had been, been created by people like your forefathers in Germany or whatever, and the French always argue. So we had to come and sort it out. Once that was over, we didn't want to stick around anymore. We went back to our goal lines again. So it struck me as being the the British position, shall we say. And anyway, this I'd said to this editor, a lovely guy, I think he works now, uh, Clive Priddle, who now works in America as an editor, I said, I'd like to write about the history of British goalkeeping, but it became that, but it also turned into kind of post-war social history of Britain, being brought up as a kid 
in a kind of insular place, which was progressively moving to being more continental, more, I say progressively, if slowly, to being a more kind of continental sort of place, learning a bit about foreign food. You know, when I was little, I mean, a plate of spaghetti in this country was um, hard to come by. Nobody knew how to eat it. My family had Italian friends as a result of my father being in Italy during the war. I knew how to eat spaghetti at the age of four. Kids I went to school with would look at you and say, oh, what are you eating worms for? That's not proper food. You know, we weren't a cosmopolitan place as far as food was concerned, but we were becoming so. So it was a bit about Britain coming out of itself, becoming more continental, more European. And at the same time, goalkeepers, traditionally very dour, very sort of stolid people, not flashy, do the job, don't show off. That's the typical British way. In time, as we became more continental, we became much more like the goalkeepers of Italy and France, continentals throwing themselves all over the place. You know, not making a simple, uh, not doing something simply and dourly, but doing it with panache and kicking your heels and probably making a mistake or two as you went along, but everybody had fun. So this was a kind of notion of the book. And, um, well, I'd, uh, you know, I, I wasn't the major bestseller. And in the end, I got, I got lots of letters of approval, so I thought, from, you know, lots of nice reviews. Then I worked out the only people who were reading it were people of my age, about 50 at the time, and they'd all played in goal, which is a fairly select and niche group of people. It's not, you know, it doesn't turn into a great booming bestseller. But I'm glad you remember it, Doug, because um, you weren't a goalkeeper, so clearly I've managed to go cross-cultural. I must tell you, I have actually heard from various British comedian friends, Paul Merton, another comedian friend, Ivor Dembina, are big fans of your book. They were fans and they were literally told me, I, I would say at one point, I remember uh, somehow bumping into Paul Merton and uh, with friends. And I said, oh, by the way, he goes, where are you headed later? And I said, I'm going to see my friend Pete Chapman. He's the guy who wrote the goalkeeper's history of Britain. He goes, oh, I love that book. So there you are. I mean, I'm just saying. Yeah. Once again, I consider one of the things I like so much about the book is it's so personal. It's both wide. It tells you about British football. It tells you about post-war British society. But it also, you learn about Pete Chapman, which is great to hear. And it also continues with somewhat, with Out of Time 1966, when you talk about this big year, Britain wins the World Cup. Swing in London, guys wearing, you know, Afghan jackets or coats or whatever that's going on down there. Tell us a little bit about Out of Time in 1966. Yeah, well, that, uh, my editor, my editor, my literary agent, as it were, what was it? I, I was trying to plug the idea once of um, doing a book on having been a traveling salesman selling carbon paper in Scandinavia. She wasn't particularly enamoured of this idea. And when was this? This was about 2014. And she said, well, what you want to do, you want to get this book out in 2016. I said, why would I want to get a book? Why? And she said, well, that would be 50 years since England won the World Cup in 1966. It's the only time England has won the Soccer World Cup, despite having been the home and the traditional creator of the fascination with soccer. And it turned into a book marking the fact it was half century uh, since England won the World Cup, and uh, also what had happened in those 
years, whether in soccer, growing up and all the rest of it, but also in the country. And, you know, 66, I mean, I suppose you could say any year uh, something special happened. But 1966, it all seemed to be coming together. It certainly was for me at the age of 18. Things seemed to be coming together in terms of what was happening in the country. It was becoming more liberal. We were getting all sorts of liberal measures, legislation being passed uh, through Parliament. Britain was coming out of itself all the more around that time. It was becoming again a little bit more cosmopolitan than it had been. Um, it seemed to me to be throwing off some of the old strictures and structures of the ancient days of monarchy and everything. But yeah, we see the Queen on the television, the, other, the monarch is still around, it still has a powerful role. And it was looking back on those 50 years, and it was called, what was it, Out of Time, 1966 and the end of old-fashioned Britain. Out of Time, incidentally, was a, a song at the time recorded on the Aftermath album by the Rolling Stones and uh, was also the number one hit by Chris Farlow. Mick Jagger produced it. Chris Farlow sang it. And it was a great version of Out of Time. And it was number one on the day that England won the World Cup in 1966, hence that title. But the idea was that here we are, we're talking, you know, uh, it was a country out of time. It was moving out of the time that it had been in. It was moving from the old time to the new time. And uh, the end of old-fashioned Britain, in many ways it did. Uh, Britain did change from then on. And then we get the Brexit vote of a couple of years ago, which you know, some people see it in very modern terms. Uh, others would see it as people of my age, sending the country back and being the great glory post-war days when we celebrated having been on the winning side in the Second World War, that kind of thing, and the days of empire and all the rest of it. That would be more my view in the way why that all happened. So perhaps it wasn't quite the end of old-fashioned Britain. And it was one of those books, as they say, that's critically acclaimed, which means the critic, you, know, you get one or two good reviews, the critics liked it, but not enough people bought it as far as I was concerned. You know, critically acclaimed means, or oh, critics said it was said it was nice, but we needed a few more hundred thousand people to buy it. You know, that kind of thing. I, uh, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the uh, auto, those two books. I consider that in the Chapman oeuvre, uh, the autobiographical ones, Bananas, How the United Fruit Company Shaped the World, and uh, Last of the Imperious Rich, The Lehman Brothers, 1844 to 2008. I enjoyed both of those books. I'm a history guy, and I like them for those reasons. But I can't help but wonder, since you mentioned about Bananas again, you had earlier yep. uh, in the interview talked about that, and I didn't know, I remember now that you had been on a kibbutz. Tell us a little bit about how the banana background of Pete Chapman ends up in that book uh yeah it began by working on this kibbutz in israel or just by chance up there by the sea of galilee by the canaret um it was one of the few places that it was a banana kibbutz and israel i think is one of the few places that grows bananas that's not in the tropics uh, at a commercial level it grows bananas i think the only other place outside the tropics that really grows that grows bananas um is iceland and that's somewhere near the geysers you know the hot geysers can you believe it but anyway, that was very a great experience working in Israel on the very hard work. I have to say, it's first time my first manual labor work. You know, the dignity of labor. Oh yeah, when there's scorpions in the top of the bananas and you have to sweat like you do in kind of a tropical plantation. But you know, that one one thing, as they say, led to another. 
And um, as a result of uh, having worked in Central America, I wanted to write a book about the United Fruit Company. I mean, it was uh, one of those, I, I couldn't believe that a company could run a country. I remember reading about Honduras once or seeing a documentary on television. They said, well, Honduras doesn't have a railway station. So why is this? What do you mean you don't have a railway station? And they said, well, all that, there's, they've got a railway line down by the Atlantic coast of Honduras, which is a long way from the capital, Tegucigalpa. And the only railway line that existed in the country was in the banana plantations and built by the United Fruit Company. And the United Fruit Company, getting all these planta- you know, this land for plantations and everything, the government was happy to give it the land for nothing. And it had promised over many years to build a railway station in the capital, Tegucigalpa, and never did, you know, never got around to it, always broke these agreements. And I thought it was incredible, you know, that a company can run a country. And I come from North London, and within, what, a mile's walk of where I was brought up, there are three major railways. So the very idea, you know, that a country could be run by a company which would say yes or no about instituting a major form of infrastructure that every country needs, I thought was incredible. So anyway, that's how I got to write a book about that. And that's been my most successful book in terms of sales. And I get the occasional, I I look at Goodreads every so often, and you get this array of reviews, some people like it, and then you see others from, you know, bunch of and then you've worked it out it's been put on their reading list and they don't really want to read a book on their reading list then they rip into the author and um, say he clearly doesn't speak english or something like that you know that kind of thing but that's been that's been the most successful uh, book the banana one because it resonates in america the united fruit company people remember it you you always guarantee i got a good review in the new york times sunday review of books with that book because there's still this resonance of history that comes down from those days. I'm just curious, have you got, are you've got anything else in the word processor at this point? Are you working on a, a new book at this point? Or are you taking a break? There are one or two books. Um, there's one or two that I'd like to write, one of which is on capital punishment, actually, strangely enough, because from, uh, again, I like the personal element in writing. Uh, well, nonfiction can be quite a rigid straitjacket to work in. So it's quite nice to write about yourself occasionally and when you can make stuff up. And uh, I actually remember from the late days, uh, late 1950s, a guy was hanged, you know, the days when we had um, execution in this country. Um, A guy from my area was hanged. He'd never moved out of the area, ended up being hanged in the area uh, in, in a case which eventually saw the changing of the law against capital punishment in this country. Uh, that's an Islington story. I'd like to write about that. That's something that I've prepared a synopsis on, but at the moment, we just need a bit more time to get it together. And when it comes to writing, when you should apply your mind to writing, they, they are the very moments you get up and dust that window ledge or you make a, another cup of green tea or, or coffee, your seventh of the morning, if only to put yourself off writing the first paragraph. So we need to get over that ridge. Well, I know um, you're a grandpa these days. As I recall, Pepito's got Rocco and what's the other little guy? Raphael. Name? Oh, Raphael. Raphael. Yeah. And so uh, you're a grandpa, and um, I'm just curious, uh, you know, I know you've had a really great life, a fascinating life. Tell us a little bit about this uh, FT, Father of the Chapel for the National Union of Journalists. This sounds like one of those eminence grease type awards that comes to somebody with a long and storied career like yourself. The, the storied career people get jobs in management. The Father of the Chapel is the head of the trade union. 
Uh, I'm not it now, I was before, but I'm still on what they call the union committee. And the Financial Times, to its credit, still honours relations with the union. Mr Murdoch and people like that, Rupert Murdoch, the union somehow didn't seem to be welcome in organisations, you know, that newspapers run by Mr Murdoch and others, and others, I have to say. But the Financial Times has always been much more one nation, as we say, one nation uh, policies. And uh, the rich man in the castle and the poor man at the gate, but you have to talk to him occasionally. So I enjoyed a three-year period as the father of the chapel. I think it comes from, I believe, that the background of much trade unionism in Britain is in the Methodist, uh, from the Methodist side of things. So whether or not in the old days of unions people met in the chapel, uh, but there was this kind of religious connection in a kind of, um, shall we say, non-establishment religion sort of, religious sort of way. So the father of the chapel is basically, it means, you know, the head of the union of your particular branch, your particular company. And, yeah, involved many, in many a discussion and continue to be in, you know, arguing about pensions, arguing about salaries, arguing about conditions. And, of course, we'll have a few more quite soon. With it. Yeah, because, shall we say, there, uh, there will be, you know, next year there won't be a salary rise or there won't be many negotiations about that. There won't be much money to distribute. There, there'll be conversations, negotiation, fascinating uh, being a negotiator. I uh, read the Harvard Business School book on um, principled negotiation uh, quite regularly called Getting to Yes. I mean, one of the great books on negotiation. It's always fascinating to watch politicians at work, the ones that are really good negotiators, not just the one that shout, people who shout at people or refuse to talk to them in press conferences. It so happens, I've never met him, Joe Biden is one of the best negotiators uh, around, even in the days of Cold War, the Cold War was considered to be a highly valued negotiator and even taking a personal role every so often, even though a junior congressman in negotiating in the Kremlin and things like, you know, on, on a way, on some trip to the USSR, Soviet Union of the day, being asked by the government of the day to call in and have a word with, you know, whoever the foreign minister was. Negotiation is fascinating. You get a chance to do that in trade union uh, relations with management. Uh, it's always a pleasure to do so, actually, even when things get a bit tough. Um, usually inside the negotiating room, people are relatively civil. It's outside. They have to go and show off and present that, pretend they all hate each other. But it was a fascinating time, and um, I continue to enjoy doing that when I get the opportunity. Peter, I want to thank you very much. Um, I love to talk to you. I have always enjoyed it. But in the meantime, yeah. I want to thank you very much for giving Snap Sessions a chance to talk to you. You're a writer, which is, of course, an artist, but a journalist and a journalistic view of life is a fascinating thing. You've always educated me over the years about things that you've done in a fun way. I've had a lot of good meals together with you, yakking about things, and I've always appreciated that. So, I want to thank you, uh, Peter Chapman, for giving Snap Sessions a chance to uh, talk with you. Thank you very much. Lovely to talk to you, Doug, and Snap Sessions, and always good to be in touch with uh, Echotopia there in, in Northern California. Thanks to our tech meister, Marshall Downtown Brown, and thanks to our jack of all trades, Ken Kraus. Special thanks to our featured artist of the episode, Peter Chapman. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. 
Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Scour magazines. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again. <laughs>